Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I am Haney. We are Native in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 169, recorded on January the 4th, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on needypintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. We have um, an interesting number of news items today. I'm sure Simon will be more than happy to uh, tell us about them. Absolutely. I'm, I'm always happy to tell everyone about the news we're going to cover and some news that we might not have time to cover. But we'll start by looking at updates to Azure Storage. I think that's something we all actually work with from time to time. The automated key rotation in Azure Key Vault. Fantastic news. Microsoft Defender for Containers, an area where me and Haney actually might know things. News in Power BI. Well, we know that they're news in Power BI, but this time I actually thought it said sparkling news first, but apparently it was something else. And then you news in Synapse. And now my synapses are gone, so let's hand over to Haney. And this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> yes, kicking off with some updates in Azure Storage. And it is kind of one of those services, if you think about storage, it's so simple. But if you think about Azure Storage, there has been so many new things happening lately. Like we just got uh, the SFTP capability in there and things like that, like really big things happening lately. And there are more and more things coming in all the time. And this time also there's some smaller things and some bigger things. So I'm going to talk about a few few new things that have come in. So um, there is now in public preview for you to, to have the capability to secure access to your storage account from a virtual network or subnet in any region. And what this is referring to is service endpoints. So we've been talking about private endpoints before, and that is where you actually create a private IP address for the service in your virtual network. Whereas service endpoints in general is that you create this trust relationship between your subnet and the service that you're trying to reach. And most of the time these, like at least previously, these have been limited to that you need to be in the same region for that to work to create the service endpoint. But now we have this in public pre public preview for storage accounts that you can actually do this across regions. So again, more capabilities for this securing your storage in a good way. There's also two items that have come generally available. And uh, one aspect of this is soft delete for blobs. Uh, for Azure Data Lake storage. So this has been around uh, already before quite a bit, and I think so. most people are familiar with this if they have been working with storage, but it pretty much allows you to then recover your deleted files. So they are only softly deleted and not completely in that way. So, so a follow-up question on that, because that means that there somewhere is a storage that takes care of whatever you have deleted. Uh, in Microsoft 365, you can put things in hold, so in place hold mm. or litigation hold. Yeah, is that something you could implement? Sort of here, so the ability to a hold is placed on someone's mailbox, as an example, when they are 
like you're suspecting that they're doing something illegal or whatever it can be. That means that even if that individual tries to delete an email, empty the recycle bin, all of that, it will still be maintained in the background so that you have the evidence still there and it can't be destroyed. Could you create something like that here or is this more of a, of a convenience feature? This is more of a convenience feature, but there is actually a feature that you're talking about. So there oh. are legal holds that you can yeah, you put on storage. Good. So, mm -hmm. and even this other generally available feature, immutable storage with versioning for blob storage, also kind of points into this direction that you were talking about. And what this immutable storage with versioning allows you to do is that it allows you to have data that is only write once. So you only can modify it once, once you write it there. But after that, you're not able to modify it. So you lock it in that state that you put it in there. Do any of you remember the term worm storage? Yeah. What? <laughs> write once, read many. Exactly. Ah, yeah. Can, can you come up with an example of this? It is literally staring you in the face, but it, it, you haven't used any of these things for years. CD-ROM. Uh -huh. That's a worm uh -huh. storage. Uh -huh. Brilliant. New invention. <laughs> now, the, the, the funny thing is, I mean, CD-ROMs are, are old, like really old. And when it comes to Azure, the storage stuff is among the oldest, which makes it fiendishly difficult to add new features to this not only is it an old code base but it is also ubiquitous because if you break something in storage you're going to hear about it like yeah. instantly by everybody <laughs> exactly. and their cat yeah and again here you also have that retention period configuration that you can set as well so speaking about that i actually purchased and used a floppy drive last week why <laughs> i think there's a story here <laughs> no, we we have a box of old floppy floppy drives that we uh, wanted to see if we could extract the photos from from my my uh, wife's father among others, uh, and I <laughs> figured out that yeah hey let's let's find one uh, and I found one that were supported on Windows ninety eight me in two thousand and apparently also on Windows eleven. <laughs> So it worked, worked perfectly. And, and just the sound that little machine makes is fantastic. So I think we should do a soundscape of, that would be a fantastic idea. A soundscape of retro IT sounds. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how the heck to find an eight inch floppy drive. <laughs> that would be fantastic. I would love that. A modem sound old hard drives, floppy, whatever you said it were, Alexander, I've never seen, touched, or heard one of those. That would be great. But serious questions. Have either of you been around in the IT stuff long enough to work with a five and a quarter uh, inch floppy drive, the, the black flimsy nope. drives? No. But you've both done the three and a half inch, right? Haney is not entirely <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I did that. I did my first, uh, I think I was like seven when I had my first computer lessons in school and then we had floppy drives to save our yeah, work. Yeah. That's true. 
I can relate with but that. But that, that was also fantastic when you open up the floppy drive and you see the pictures. And one picture is like 50K. <laughs> and it's tiny. Like Amazing. open up a, a 50K image on a 4K screen. That was fantastic. Yeah. So I used to do photography, right? And one of the worst things you can do is to talk to a radiologist. And <laughs> I'm, I'm going to explain why. So I was working for a, a company that were doing uh, digital radiology stuff many, many years ago. And it turns out that a lot of the radiologists are photographers as well because they have access to these enormously good screens. The mm -hmm. specialized displays that they use for digital radiology you can take 4K and just shove it because it has nothing on those displays. And this was like 15, mm -hmm. 20 years ago. And huh. one of the worst things you can do is to show your pictures to said radiologists. They're going to put it on these screens and you can figure out exactly how crappy your camera is and how crappy your Photoshop work is. I, Yeah, that was a humbling experience. That's, that's, let's say that. Yeah. I want to know more about the last item you had as well, Haney, with the um, attribute-based access yes, control, because I, that I sounds was, fun. Yeah, I was leaving the most, I think, interesting item for last. So so the fourth fourth kind of new capability that has come into public preview in Azure Storage is attribute-based access control. And I I find this to be very interesting. So this kind of builds on top of the role-based access control, where you can then also add these conditions to those role assignments that you give into your storage account and use these attributes. So you can, in this preview, there is uh, Azure AD custom security attributes that you can use as part of that. And then you can also have resource and request attributes in the condition expressions as well. And I think this is kind of a new level of access management to resources where we also have additional things that we're checking other than just the identity mm -hmm. of the user or the service that is calling that and trying to do things to Azure Storage in this case. Are, are we kind of seeing the dawn of... Um... Remember when, I think it was Cisco that came out with the, the um, software-defined network and their, their way to design and organize, especially organized networks from a software perspective. It didn't really matter how you set up your VLANs and stuff because you, you tied the whole thing together with the software. It kind of sorted things for you. Would you say that this is the, the precursor to something similar for... for uh, security? Maybe. <laughs> I have no idea how to answer that. <laughs> that. That was a very nice way of saying, I have no idea. That was a dumb question. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, it, it isn't, it isn't dumb. No, but it's, it's such a different kind of, um, what's the word set up? That's not what I'm looking for, but it, it's a different way of looking at it. Yeah. And in, in many ways, the more we do look at it. I, 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 I've uh, toyed with it a bit. The more I kind of get this feeling that hmm, this is kind of, this is a good idea. This, this is kind of intuitive in a way. It's also scary um, in exactly the same way as software-defined networking is scary. I no longer have 
detailed control. I'm kind of giving that control away in a, a bit. Yes, I know that I, I can still see it. I think the difference here is that this is coming on top of Azure RBAC. So it's first checking the RBAC roles and then these additional conditions. Like, for example, you could check which environment is this request coming from and have that as one condition that it only can come from this environment. This so is it's how not, it begins. In, <laughs> that's true. In, in that way, I don't feel like it's creating such a black box around it. It's more giving your more capability to add conditions that you define. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. So I'm really excited to see where this particular one is going. Yeah. So what about the, the key rotation? Can we yes. finally put that to bed? Uh, yes, I guess. <laughs> so, so we now have uh, automated, key, automated key rotation in Azure Key Vault in public preview. So it's not generally available yet. So um, in that sense, no, we cannot put it to rest quite yet. Uh, until things are generally available, I don't think we can do this. And pretty much you can set a rotation policy on a key to really have this automated rotation and then have also expiring notifications going through event grid to integrate with your systems and have those notifications out. And the aim of this is to really have that zero touch key rotation for the Azure services that you might, for example, be encrypting with these keys when you're using your own customer managed keys that are in Azure Key Vault. So that's really the aim with this. And it but, feels like one of these examples that it, it sounds easy, automatic key rotation. Yes, yes. And then you start exactly. to think about what it actually mm -hmm. means. And then you just get scared. Yeah. And it's one of those things, if you have to handle your own key rotation, it's like, it's always one of those things that people don't want to think about. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your keys are? Yeah. But, but but you're basically what you basically are doing. You're exchanging the locks at the same time as you exchange the keys. Exactly. And and just and to physically exchange locks on a house and the key, that is hard enough. Here yeah. you can break so many things. <laughs> so it's it's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's a really good progression, and I I yeah. hope it goes well in the preview, and we can actually it working because I think this is something that many organizations also struggle with how to do this efficiently. <laughs> and it's also often one of those tasks that you don't do every day. So it's always a bit like, ah, how did this go? Just to be very clear, the automation of the key rotation, that's fantastic, but that's just one side of the coin. Because as you say, this is not only a technical issue, this is a process issue yes. way more. And unfortunately, one, one that very few people uh, tend to think about before the shit literally hits the fan and you have to rotate the keys. Yeah. And then if something breaks at that stage. You're up shit creek. Yeah, exactly. And, and just look at Microsoft. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> they evil. made that mistake as well. <laughs> yep, it happens yeah. to the best of us. Yeah, exactly. That's why it never happens to me. <laughs> Good point. 
Do you even know how to make a storage account? Oh, come on. <laughs> I had to. All right. I, I think we can then go on to the third, <laughs> third item on my news items, which is Microsoft Defender for Containers. Uh, so this funny thing happened that me and my colleague were um, recording a session for a Microsoft event that is going to be held online. And we were talking about Azure Kubernetes service. And one of the aspects we were talking about is how to secure it. And I was talking about Azure Defender for Kubernetes and Azure Defender for container registries. And that morning, the name had changed to Microsoft Defender for Containers. <laughs> so I was still talking about the old stuff in our presentation. So that's, you know, you should always check everything the last minute and probably not. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, a couple of years back, I was doing a session on Azure Data Lake uh, Gen 2. I was going to speak in, in Oslo and I was sitting late at night before my session just reading news and lo and behold adls gen 2 generally available thank you microsoft that was before i was an mvp so i didn't have a clue that was going to come out and yeah. i'm pretty happy that i, I didn't catch. get caught out by that yeah nice yeah i yeah i i bluntly went ahead and talked about the old old services so um Azure Defender, you know, that is the uh, old name. And now we are calling all these security uh, products that are within the Microsoft ecosystem. All they start with Microsoft Defender for so and so forth. And so, of course, this, this change is also happening uh, on the Azure side for all these services. And so the Defender for Kubernetes and the Defender for Container Registries those two got combined, plus we got a little, actually quite a bit of new extra features with having this new Microsoft Defender for Containers service that includes these old features plus some extra. And I think one of the interesting parts here is that it actually brings support to other clouds as well. So it is no longer just restricted to doing the scannings and vulnerability checks only in AKS, but you can also use this for Amazon, Amazon EKS and GCP will be added in the future as well. As so, well as on-prem. Yeah, exactly. On-prem is there today. Yeah, that's true. And, and this is a clear response to CrowdStrike because that's been like, when I've spoken to customers in regards to which EDR solution they should use, they, of course, want one vendor in mm -hmm. many cases for all of their security products. And CrowdStrike has been fantastic at securing containers for a very long time and on all platforms. So say that you're working with a company that have had Kubernetes running on AWS for a while and they want a security-free or security vendor. Many of them chose CrowdStrike. So this is a clear like attack on CrowdStrike in terms of getting that one platform. And that's also why they remove Azure from the name and instead say Microsoft Defender. Yeah. So great addition. And yeah, uh, will I think be so very too. interesting to see how it compares to CrowdStrike. Exactly. Um, I'll just blow through mine um, because we're already uh, slightly off <laughs> script. 
Uh, so there was a December update and it contained for, for a Power BI desktop, I should say, and it did contain uh, quite a few things. And two of the things that I want to, or three of the point of things that I want to point out, uh, two of them were in the update and one was, was not spark lines. It's not sparkling Simon, it's spark lines. And thank you. Spark lines are these teeny tiny, um, lines, if you will, line, uh, kind of a line chart inside of a uh, cell in a table or in a matrix. It's a great way to very, very quickly visualize any trends or distribution of data. And it's, 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 it's tiny. It's, uh, it's something that's been asked for quite some time and it's actually been available in a third party visual. Uh, that's Zebra BI. And personally, I think Zebra BI is a fantastic, um, third party visual, uh, in many ways, far superior to the grand, the, the spark lines that we've got in the December update. But then again, this is the first iteration. So I'm, I'm sure it's going to get better. Another thing that we got, which has been a huge ask because it's such an obvious thing. So in deployment pipelines, which the, the, is the, the DevOps um, way of, of doing things in, in Power BI, you can put stuff into uh, pipeline stages, right? So you go from, from dev to, to stage to, to, um, to prod, for instance, the issue has been that from the get go, you had to create, let, let Power BI create the names of the, the, um, work, uh, workspaces, which kind of, well, it kills if you have a, a good, um, naming scheme going, you can't use that. And then we were able to uh, take a, um, a work space and assign it to a pipeline stage. And now we can take any workspace and assign it to any pipeline stage. So it's, it's an iteration of a functionality really, uh, that should have been in there from the get go, in my personal opinion, because let's just say that they, they have some ways to go with pipelines. It's a great mm -hmm. feature, but it's nowhere near finished, which they're more than happy to, to underwrite as well. It's not finished. And the final thing that I want to talk about when it comes to Power BI is the on-demand loading for large data sets. And we need to start by explaining what is a large data set. So everything in Power BI is stored in Vertipack, right? That's the, the storage engine underneath um, uh, Power BI. And you can either have a um, data set set as a small data set or a large data set. The large data sets can be enabled for premium SKUs. Um, so either P SKUs, A SKUs, or premium per user. And that's the only way to grow beyond 10 gigabytes. There, there are some, some other features that you get with the, uh, the large data sets and some limitations that you get with large data sets as well. Uh, but if you set it onto large data sets, it behaves essentially exactly as uh, Azure analysis services would in, in that case. So what you're going to have is one of the issues with, with um, data sets when it comes to um, usage is what's known as data set eviction. That means that if you haven't worked with a data set for a while, it gets marked for eviction. And as soon as something else needs the space, 
and the capacity, well, bye-bye, just your, your um, data set just went out the window. That's fine. I mean, it's, it's not going anywhere. It's just going basically back to disk. It's out of the cache. And that means that the next time you need to access it, you're going to need to pull a lot of data into memory before you can actually touch it. And this is where this on-demand loading comes into play. When you put a data set into a large data set size, it's going to be chopped into segments or well, that's essentially how VertiPack works. The only difference here is that a segment is 8 million rows. And with this setting, Power BI can load just the segments required to satisfy your query. So that means that your load times for a large model are going to be much, much lower. Technically, it's it's just the, the, the variation of the theme. How, how do you read three trillion rows. The easy answer is you don't, you cheat and you just bring in the rows that you need. That's exactly what this does. So it's kind of neat. Uh, it's going to be enabled by default if you are using Power BI Premium and you set launch data set mode to enabled, then this is always going to be around. Uh, really interesting stuff um, and I, I can highly recommend you to check it out, but be aware of a few gotchas when it comes to putting stuff as a large um, data set size. Because if you do that, you probably won't be able to download the as a PBIX file. You also won't be able to uh, move stuff around for um, regions. And one of the most dangerous things that few people realize, you can't use push datasets because they don't support the large dataset storage format. And the small thing, um, in Synapse, we have Spark, managed Spark underneath. That's one of the offerings and that's great. Uh, Personally, I think Spark is fantastic. I think Spark sucks by the fact that you need to spin the damn thing up. And of course, whenever you want to touch it, it went to bed. So you need to wait a couple of minutes for the thing to wake up. That is an issue. So if we could have automatically managed Spark that we didn't need to spin up, oh, wow, that would just blow everything else out of the water. But until then, we got, kind of got a consolation price. And that consolation prize is in the shape of a quick reuse of Spark clusters. You can set a, a cooldown period so it doesn't run off and go to bed instantly. You can say, okay, I, I, you should stay awake for 10 or 15 minutes. This means that you can bridge shorter, quicker Spark jobs. So instead of them being forced to wait for a full uh, spin up, they can now reuse an already existing Spark cluster. And at the end of the day, it's going to save you time and incidentally also money because you don't need to spend as much time having the thing running. It's not ideal, but it's a step in the right direction. Okay, so because I was going to ask about the cost, but you would still pay for that cool down period, but it would be less time than you would have to wait for it to boot from scratch. So in practice, you would save money because you save the time you're using it. Yes. Yep. 
you, you're you're going to be saving your own blood pressure. <laughs> it's hard to assign a cost to it, but it's there. Yeah, I, I think like in Sweden we can't put a cost on it, but in the US you sure can put a cost on high blood blood pressure. True, I'm sure we can find some statistics on that. Probably. Which kind of brings us to uh, requirements. <laughs> yeah, that was one <laughs> of the of. worst segues ever. Yeah, I, I think so. That was worse than what I usually do. Uh, but yeah, so requirements for really anything. When we start to design something, when we start to architect something, the hardest challenge I've ever had is when a customer asks me, do this. And I say, okay, how do you want it to behave? Look, what performance metrics are we searching for? And they say, we don't know. Or you choose. Or you do what's best. That's a certain way of achieving absolutely nothing. I don't agree. That's a certain way of achieving a abject failure. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so if you can't put requirements on whatever you do, you probably shouldn't do it. It's like going to the car dealer and ask, I need a car. Okay, do you have anything you would like to add? I want a car. You could get what probably, <laughs> you would probably get whatever that car salesperson earns the most money from. You might want to stay away from, from Tesla or, or Ferrari <laughs> or Lamborghini in that case. Yeah, go, go for Kia. Or, or Skoda. <laughs> Should we mute Alexander? <laughs> I wish we could, but we're here as guests for whatever reason. Okay. Yeah. So whenever you start a project, you need to gather the requirements. And I've been, over the holidays, I've been working uh, and I'm currently using the architectural framework that Sygate are working on. Uh, to do really any kind of project. And I'm rebuilding that to suit the Digit's workplace. And one essential bit of that is how to gather requirements, prioritize them, and then deliver on them and ensure that you actually follow that process all the way through. So you have a kind of a different approach. In, in my opinion, you have a different approach when you do something like infrastructure. So when you design a network or you design a, a data center or a new cloud infrastructure solution, which may be built on platform as a service or infrastructure as a service, doesn't really matter. It's a back-end solution in many instances. You have one way of getting requirements, but then you work with Digit's Workplace or something like that, and you have an another set of requirements, another group of people, and you might need to gather your requirements in different ways. But let, let's start from there. So when you get assigned a project, how do you gather your requirements from your customer or internally or wherever you're working? How do you gather requirements and from whom do you gather requirements? Well, I, I work in customer projects, so I, I might have some general sense of the requirements before I start mm -hmm. the project because I need to know that I'm a good fit there, that it's actually something that I'm good at, that I can help them with. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's not like exact requirements yet. It's more like the general gist of the project. 
And then uh, gathering the requirements kind of uh, officially, I talk to people. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, I am working in a project where I'm uh, helping build the infrastructure for an application. So I talk with the developers, I, I talk uh, with the testers, I talk with the operations team who trying to figure out how do they want to manage it. And it's actually quite many people. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I have a very formal process for it. It's more asking questions and, and gathering them in that way. Just to add to that, I, I, I'm doing the exact same thing. The challenge is not to take what they're asking for verbatim. Because many times, one of the worst things you can do is to ask someone, what do you need? What do you want? Because the answers you're going to get, if you're going to get any answers at all, are probably going to be all over the place. But that's also kind of the, the, the gist of it. But then as you start to probe deeper and ask more specific questions, they're going to come up with answers. The trick is to figure out, okay, what is required? What is need to have? What is nice to have? And what is just fluff? This is where experience comes into play. And you also know, okay, they want to have the world, but they want to pay for, I don't know, the pine cone. Well, we're going to have some issues. So being this this filter or being this this project manager, whatever you want to call it, to kind of take what's being said and turn it into uh, a set of, of requirements. That is, in my view, the the most difficult aspect of our work, and that is something that we will, I don't think, ever be uh, the best at. Every day we're going to learn something new. And it's quite interesting. I, I I will follow up on two of the things you said because that will continue the, the dialogue in a good way. Uh, and I will start with you, Alexander, because that's a very interesting thing that they want the world but want to pay for Liechtenstein, basically. Um, and isn't that really where we usually go wrong from the start? Yes, managing expectations. That, yeah, but but also the, the actual process of getting to a point where we actually start to implement something because let's say that okay someone says we we have we want to implement a new network and we have a budget of three million euros to do that and then you start to gather the requirements and those requirements are basically yeah you should be connected everywhere you should be super secure yada 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 and if you, and we'll get back to the, accept all of those requirements, you will get a price tag of 50 million or 5 million euros, more than you said from the start, but which will fulfill all the requirements that your organization have. Mm. Might. Yeah, and I have issues, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so wouldn't it be better to say we have this need? We, we need to do something that requires us to rebuild the network. We need to know how to rebuild it and how much it would cost. So let's gather the requirements. And I will get into the requirements and, and explain that in a little more detail soon. And then, okay, we have all of these requirements. We will have this cost. 
can we accept it or not? And if we can't, then we can start to prioritize or do it another way, which I will like spin by you in just a few minutes. But I think that's one of the challenges we have that we usually have a group of people or one individual or a team that says, we want to do this with this budget before they actually know what they're supposed to do. And I think that's key. That's what you just said is key. We have a tendency to jump on and try to do things before we have a complete grasp of the, the problem statement. But I would also argue in this specific case that you kind of did something that is extremely common. You focused on the technical requirements. And the mm -hmm. technical requirements have a way of leading us down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Because from a technical standpoint, I want everything to be connected to everything. I want to have 100% <laughs> uptime. All those things, those are very cost driving. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because technology is not there for its own sake. We need yep. to dig deeper. We need to figure out what do the people need. And again, this is no longer a technical issue, technical yeah. discussion. But yeah, I think that's where we're going. Yeah, we, we're, 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 we're getting there. Uh, the other thing that you said, Haney, where you go around, you talk to people, you gather their requirements. The challenge I then find, and I may have experience of this over the last year or so, uh, you have a bunch of requirements and you implement something based on those. But then when someone says, okay, we're now going to sign off and they say, this wasn't what we wanted. Who said that we required this? And if you don't document it, then in this case, it was all the consultants work. <laughs> and, and that's the challenge. Yeah. So the process that I will be following from now on that I've really come to love is where you gather all the requirements, all the expectations, and you have them as potential requirements. Then you run them through a steering committee or a project team or something like that, and you accept some requirements which are in scope, possibly, or you combine requirements, and you also create design principles, which we have spoken about in earlier episodes, that we have certain things that isn't necessarily a specific requirement, but something we want to fulfill for possibly all projects, whatever we do, that we will adhere to. And we document that process from who said which potential requirement, move them to accepted, and have a clear red thread through all of this. So who said what, how did we accept them, how did we create these principles, and so on. And then we are able to create like a high-level design or something like that and start to estimate the cost. And funnily enough, we have a tendency to find new things that we didn't even think of in the first place yeah. when we do this. This, this is the way to do things. I, I highly agree. Mm -hmm. And then we're back to who says what and who do we speak to? Because, and I know that that's the case for at least some of your projects, but looking at, again, data center, networking, it's not too common, which is a shame to ask the actual users or non-IT staff about their requirements, their needs. And I try my best to get all of those views, 
because in many areas they, they are similar. It's just other ways of saying it. So talk to as many as possible anyone that will experience this and also talk to the IT admins that will be managing this on a day-to-day basis because it's also very easy that we forget about those. We speak to the users and we speak to the architects, the stakeholders, the, the top end of IT, and we forget about the people that are actually supposed to work with these tools on a day-to-day business or day-to-day usage. So I, I think that's the important bit and understanding what will actually have an impact on anyone down the line. And before I let you in into the discussion again, uh, and the last bit is really that I do not agree with you at all, Alexander. (laughs) I absolutely love asking that you could get anything in the world. What would you like? If, if I had nothing, what's your requirements? What's your desires? What's your dreams? Please give them to me. Because that can possibly, in many cases, help us find the very small bits and pieces that will actually bring value and doesn't cost us anything. So if we probe too specific, we might miss some aspects. And that's also why I also love visiting users where they work and ask them i see that you're doing this why are you doing it like that and sort of find requirements and ease like things that can ease their everyday work it may not be a requirement but i can gather it and say we have an inefficient process here can we solve that so what's your thoughts on all of this i agree um the difference is context by saying what you just said, if you could have anything, think outside the box, just come up with cool stuff, then it works. If you Mm -hmm. just hit them in the face with, what do you want? Then you're gonna (laughs) fail. That's that's what I I think of it. And I just wanna give you an interesting example of this whole Mm -hmm. looking at a system from a holistic view. Fighter jets, the number of people and the skill required to service an F-16, an American fighter, or basically anything from the US. You have people that work full-time. They're mechanics, they're specialists in whatever area they work with. When when you touch down and and taxi in and you need to change the armaments of an F-16, you're gonna have this army of people just descending on the airplane and they are specialists. Not so much in Sweden, you have one officer, maybe one specialist officer, and a number of just conscripts. That's what you get if you think about how do we do this? How do we service this darn thing outside in the woods? We don't have access to all these fancy things, so we have a hand crank. Let's use that. Apparently, the Finnish army have access to all of those specialists now. Where did you really have to open up? (laughs) I have no comment to this. Yeah. So the takeaway of that, and we will get back to it because I think I've said that at some point. One of the reasons why I chose to join SciGate were that uh, one of our head architects said that we're very proud of our architectural framework. 
And it like now when I'm starting to really get into it and adopting it to whatever I do, it, it really is interesting to learn about those documented, prioritized potential requirements and how they move along from the first start to the implementation and that you can follow it. But I think it's important to first gather those requirements and ask anyone that may be impacted about with, with that change you're thinking of doing, big or small. Prioritize them because you can't get the world. You, you don't have all the money in the world. I've, I've met one company that actually said, we have no upper limit. We want other things. Like we have these requirements from our business. It doesn't matter how much it costs. Fulfill them. Okay. But you, you need to... <laughs> They had a, a a fairly huge bag of money, so uh, so prioritize them so you get to a point where you know what to deliver at what cost, and that you can follow whatever you deliver all the way back to who said what that made us make this decision. I think that greatly will increase any project's success rate. It will ensure that you fulfill more requirements. And it will also ensure that you don't go down, like you said, Alexander, down the rabbit holes or trying to fulfill something that in the end only were a single individual's need, not the bigger organization. Requirements lineage, really important stuff. Other really important stuff, community. Yeah, and the fact that we're already out of time, but let's (laughs) go for it. We're consistent. I'll, I'll give you that. So uh, it's been, I'll, I'll just put it very bluntly. It's been a hell of a startup of 2022 uh, with regards to uh, events. I've had no fewer than three events moved or canceled because, well, it's going to be hard for, for NDC to do things in London in January. So no, that's not going to happen. It's the same thing with the Nordic Infrastructure Conference, nope, not going to happen in, in February either. Nor is the Scottish Summit going to happen either. So they, they've been moved to uh, the summer. And incidentally, a few of these were moved to the same date. Mm-hmm. And that date was the same date where Data Grillen was or is. So the... The lack of the first half of the year is very evident. And I think we're going to find that we have basically bumper to bumper uh, conferences yeah. um, for, for the, the autumn, which is going to be an issue. But one of the things, one of the very few events, uh, online events that I will be doing this year uh, is the Data Minutes event. I really enjoyed being a part of the first data minutes and you were a part of it as well, Henny. Yes. And I will be also part of the second one. There we go. Yeah. It was really fun. Yeah. It's, it's a fantastic event, 10 minute sessions and a gazillion of them. And I'm going to sit like glued to the screen, just watching all these really small tidbits because it's going to open my eyes to things that I had mm-hmm. no idea about. So the Data Minutes is a fantastic event, and I, I cannot recommend that highly enough. And then somebody came out of nowhere and decided to write a Cosmos DB certification. Well, yeah, why not? 
So, so I did the new Cosmos DB certification uh, test that is in beta still. So I have no idea if I passed or not. Uh, I think it was actually quite a good certification for a beta Yeah, but was it fun? It was fun, of course. Fun and Cosmos does not mix. (laughs) Yes, they do. You just don't get it yet. You'll get it at some point. So, in regards to Cosmos DB, there is a Azure Cosmos DB certification study hall um, weekly event starting on January 12th. And this is pretty much walking through the material for this Azure Cosmos DB certification. And there are different MVPs that are presenting every week. And I've gotten also an opportunity to be one of the presenters and will actually be in the very first of these sessions to walk through just the overview and so forth. But So if anyone is interested, join it and it will be going every week uh, until April. So it's going to be 15 episodes coming up and really going deep into the material that you need to learn for this certification. Was that a jab at me that even I might be able to attend those things and even I might be able to learn that thing? That was just your interpretation, but yes, you could <laughs> learn th- something from this. You know, you could learn how does modeling differ in Cosmos DB compared to a relational database, for example. Cosmos is just expensive. That isn't so true anymore. You need to check your facts. Meh. Oh, <laughs> I'm actually writing three exams in the coming two weeks. Whoa. Two on Monday. Uh, the new ASET 800 and 801, and also the DP300 again. So we'll see about that. And I also passed the MS203, uh, as well so as repassed the ASET 104 just before Christmas. Repassed? Well, no, no, (laughs) because the exam uh, again. Yes, because I forgot to renew it. I had just 90 days to do it and I didn't do it. So I had to retake the full exam again. And it didn't work out too well (laughs) at first, but now I paused again. So So don't be like Simon. Remember to renew your certifications in time. You have plenty of time. And I think that might actually be an excellent time to end. So Simon can really stew in this. Fantastic. Well played, Haney. Yes, we are over time, but I think this was a really fun episode. Uh, it was a great conversation. Next week, we're going to be doing a uh, an interview. If nothing happens, um, I'm going to do an interview on Monday, and that's going to be released on Thursday. And then we'll be back with a normal episode in two weeks. And until then, have a wonderful time and thank you for listening. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Need in Tech. Need in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Heini Hilmaninen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at ndpetech.com.